You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. We are going to continue uh, our study in the Gospel of Mark. We'd started it a number of weeks, even months ago. And then when my book came out, I did a couple of messages um, from my book, Harbinger Hope. It's on Amazon, seventeen ninety. No, and um, but we did want to we did want to get back and continue. Um, the Gospels, because they talk so much about Jesus, and we can't talk enough about Jesus. Amen? So, um, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, there are five specific events. And I'm really only, only going to cover one of them, because there's just so much in the chapter. But what we're trying to do is whet your appetite to go read and... Dig in there and find out who this Jesus really is. Um, but in Mark chapter 11, it contains what's been called the triumphal entry. There is the episode of the barren fig tree when Jesus spoke to a fig tree and it dried up. Jesus cleanses the temple, which was a very unpopular move on his behalf. Then Jesus discusses or gives us some insights as to how faith works. And then the Pharisees begin to question Jesus' authority. So all of that is in Mark chapter 11. And obviously we can't get to all of it today, but here's what I want to do. I want to read 10 verses out of Mark 11 and then want to read three or four verses out of Luke 19. Um, because actually this episode of the triumphal entry shows up in all four gospels and which is a little bit rare. Everything you find in one gospel is not necessarily in uh, two, three, or even four of the other ones. And so we do find that the triumphal entry is. So here is what we'll do. We'll go to, and if you want to find uh, in your Bible, Mark 11. And um, I'm reading out of the Passion Translation. How many of you have a Passion Translation of the Bible? Yeah, it's great. I really, I've enjoyed this so much. I've been reading the Bible a long time. This sort of opens my eyes um, again. So wonderful to get a fresh viewpoint. So, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Mark chapter 11. Now, as they were approaching Jerusalem, they they arrived at the place of the stables near Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead. And said to them, as soon as you enter the village ahead, you will find a donkey's colt tethered there that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone asks, why are you taking it? Tell them, the master needs it and will send it back to you soon. So they went, found the colt outside in the street, tied to a gate. When they started to untie it, some people standing there said to them, why are you untying that colt? They answered just as Jesus had told them. The master needs it, and he will send it back to you soon. So the bystanders let them go. The disciples brought the colt to Jesus and piled their cloaks and prayer shawls on the young donkey, and Jesus rode upon it. Many people carpeted the road in front of him with their cloaks, 
and prayer shawls, while others gathered palm branches and spread them before him. Jesus rode in the center of the procession with crowds going before and behind him. They all shouted in celebration, bring the victory. We welcome the one coming with the blessings of being sent from the Lord Yahweh. Blessings rest on this kingdom he ushers in right now, the kingdom of our father David. Bring us the victory in the highest realms of heaven. Okay. Then I want to read over out of the Gospel of Luke. So here's the picture. Jesus finds a cult, or actually he gives, honestly, a word of knowledge to his disciples about where this cult is. He tells them where it is. He tells them what's going to happen. He tells how to deal with what's going to happen when they don't want him to have the cult. And they bring the cult back. And the interesting thing is a cult no one has ever ridden. How many of you would like to ride a cult no one has ever ridden before? Apparently no problem for Jesus. And so Jesus gets on this cult. Meanwhile, all of the city is in an uproar. Actually, the words in, um, in, in the Bible here, the ancient or the original languages, use the word uh, that you would use for an earthquake. I mean, it was a huge uproar in the city as Jesus was coming into town. Thousands and thousands of people knew of his ministry, knew he'd healed the sick. And what they were expecting was they were expecting him to exercise a military victory over Rome. That's what many of the people who approved of Jesus and loved Jesus thought he was going to do. And so Jesus is coming from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem on not just a donkey, but a donkey's colt. Well, if you have the idea here, you've got stallion, then you've got horse, then you've got donkey, then you've got foal of a donkey. And those donkeys apparently were no higher at the shoulder than about 36 inches. So here's the picture. The picture is you have this adult grown Jesus riding down the Mount of Olives, which is a 400 foot descent over a half mile distance on this donkey with his feet virtually touching the ground. It's, 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 it's really very, very interesting picture. And all of it really speaks profoundly to who Jesus is, what he was here to do. We're going to see all that in a minute. And so my idea is to read these verses, talk about what we're going to talk about, and then make application about what we, what we did speak about. So when Jesus gets to the gates of the city, he begins, actually it says here, a continuation of that Mark story over in Luke, it said, when Jesus caught sight of the city, he burst into tears with uncontrollable weeping over Jerusalem, saying, if only you could recognize that this day peace is within your reach, but you cannot see it. For the day is soon coming when your enemies will surround you, pressing you in on every side and laying siege to you. They will crush you to pieces and your children too. And when they leave, your city will be totally destroyed. And here's why. Since you would not recognize God's day of visitation. 
your day of devastation is coming. And so this is called the triumphal entry. And um, what is the significance of it? And I'm going to read you some stuff I found online just to sort of help set the stage, uh, talk a little bit about this, give a little bit more definition to it. The triumphal entry is that of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on what we know as Palm Sunday. How many are familiar with that word, Palm Sunday? That was the Sunday before his crucifixion. And so Jesus' popularity is at its peak a week before they crucify him, which is really uh, something well worth considering. This triumphal entry is said before, one of the few interests, incidents in the life of Jesus which appears in all four gospel accounts and was a significant event. The day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a borrowed donkey's colt, one that had never been ridden before, well, the disciples spread their cloaks on the donkey for Jesus to sit on. The multitudes came out to welcome him, laying before him their cloaks, and the branches of palm trees. Jesus was being received as a conquering king. Is basically what this is. The people hailed and praised him as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. As he rode to the temple where he taught people, healed them, and drove out the money changers and merchants who made his father's house uh, a den of robbers. And so that's where Jesus was heading. Jesus' purpose in riding into Jerusalem was to make public his claim to be their Messiah and king of Israel in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Matthew 21.4 says that the king coming on the foal of a donkey was an exact fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 was prophesied hundreds of years prior to this event. And it reads this way. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus rides into his capital city as a conquering king and is hailed by the people as such in the manner of the day. The streets of Jerusalem, the royal city, are open to him. And like a king, he ascends to his palace. Not a temporal palace, but the spiritual palace, that is the temple. Because his is a spiritual kingdom. He receives the worship and praise of the people because only he deserves it. No longer does he tell his disciples to be quiet about him. You realize a lot of times when Jesus did miracles and everybody wanted to spread the word, he would tell them not to. But now he encourages them to shout out his praises and worship him openly. The spreading of the people's cloaks was an act of humility or homage for royalty. Jesus was openly declaring to the people that he was their king and the Messiah they had been waiting for. But the citizens of Jerusalem and even his own disciples did not understand what kind of king Jesus was. One of the things I recognize is that I rarely understand what the Lord's doing while he's doing it. How many of you understand what I'm saying? His disciples didn't either. Jerusalem didn't either. And that's, that's, a, very, that's a very intriguing thing that um, God is at work doing things, doing things for us, doing things through us, doing things around us. And honestly, 
we don't hardly even understand as they're going on what he's doing. Most of what we understand is in retrospect, although I don't think Jesus wants it to be that way. He wants us to be spiritually astute, but uh, not many people in that club. So within a few days, the exuberant crowds praise changed to cries of what? Crucify him. Those who hailed him as a hero would soon reject and abandon him. So, what is the significance of the triumphal entry? I've got five if you're a note taker. Number one, it made public Jesus' claim as the true Messiah. Number two, it fulfilled the Zechariah 9-9 prophecy foretelling how he would appear Number three, it revealed the kind of kingdom Jesus established. Not a, not a, um, a natural one, but a spiritual one, a gentle one, and a one built on kindness and humility. Number four, his actions forced the true heart condition of the nation's religious leaders to emerge. Much of what emerged was envy, hatred, rejection, personal ambition, rebellion against God. And it accelerated events leading to Jesus' crucifixion. Um, that number four, his actions forced the true heart condition of the nation's religious leaders to emerge. There was an old expression that went, went, went around years ago, and it was something like, God will offend your heart to reveal your motives. How many know your motives are important? How, how many of you are aware that you don't really know why you do what you do. Does everybody understand that? Yeah. That's why we shouldn't judge other people. Do you see the logical conclusion? If you're really close to yourself and you don't know why you do what you do, how could you possibly know why other people do what they do? But the thing about the triumphal entry was it flushed out of the hearts of the religious leaders of the day, their true motives. And one of the things about knowing the Lord is he will get to your true motives sooner or later. And it's important that he does because at the motivation level is where life really changes. And we can only actually rid ourselves of bad attitudes and actions. Number one, we recognize, this is such a great message, Bad, <laughs> bad attitudes are actions that we, number one, recognize, but recognizing them is not enough to make a change. You need to take personal responsibility for those actions. Okay. And, of course, I mentioned number five. The triumphal entry accelerated the events that led to Jesus' crucifixion. Now, after having sort of given that sort of academic introduction, I want to try to make some application because I generally listen to other people preach based on the so what method of analysis. Do you know what that is? When I get through hearing what they say, I say, so what? <laughs> so treat me to the same rule, please. Right now, what have you gotten out of what I've said? Information, maybe some insight, but so what? Here's, here's 
what for. I'll give you, I gave you, yeah, we're going from so what to what. Go and give you what for, ladies and gentlemen. Now, one of the practical, practical applications I call, may I have some water? I don't call it. Actually, I have a Burger King Diet Coke over there I would prefer. It just is not as classy as, uh, Numchuck's coffee. I'm, you know, this is an image demolisher, nevertheless, the breakfast of champions. I call it the challenge and danger of popularity. Jesus' triumphal entry was at the very height of his popularity. And within a week, those same people had killed him. And so there's really something in that um, up and down situation, that sort of radical shift from high heights to, to, to deep depths that we need, I think we really need to learn something from. Actually, he was so popular, Mark 11, 18b says, because the entire crowd was carried away with astonishment by Jesus' teaching. I mean, he was, he was popular because he was so gifted, so capable, and had such a powerful ministry that really did help people, really did change the lives of people. But being popular is dangerous. Joseph, for example, in Acts 7, 9b through 10, tells us a little bit about Joseph's life. It says, Jacob's sons, that was Joseph's father. You might remember Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was Joseph. Joseph was his favorite son. But it says, Jacob's son became jealous of their brother Joseph and sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God's favor and blessing rested upon Joseph. And in time, someone say in time. In time, God rescued him. God will rescue us, but not necessarily when we want him to. But we need to remember God's heart is to rescue us. But God rescued him from all his oppression and granted him extraordinary favor before Pharaoh. So, one little conclusion we can have here. It's better to have God's favor and blessing than popular favor. It's better to have God's favor. It's better to be popular with God than popular with people. Now, I'm not all for being unpopular. Do you understand what I'm saying? Nobody wakes up in the morning and wonders how they can be uh, considered less of, right? But you, honestly, success can be a very dangerous problem. How many of you want to be successful? I want to be successful. But one of the problems with success is if you don't know how to handle it. Actually, it says an inheritance gained too soon will be lost. What does that mean? If you do not know how to handle prosperity, if you don't know how to be blessed, you will actually end up in worse shape than you began. Matter of fact, how many of you hear about these people that win the lottery? Everybody wants to win the the lottery, but people that win the lottery up in the 90th percentile are in worse shape in a very short period of time before they won those millions of dollars. And there's a reason. If you do not go through the um, process 
of gaining wealth, you awesome do, you often do not know how it is to manage it, maintain it, and keep it. And so if you don't go through the process of gaining notoriety, if you don't go through the dealings of the Lord as you become, um, I don't want to talk about famous, but as you become notable. You know, if you really have something from God, people are going to want it. It's going to put you in places of prominence. But you need to know, you need to go through a process to get there. Better to have God's favor than everyone else's approval. Now, even Jesus' friends found themselves in a dangerous place because of the ministry Jesus gave them. For instance, uh, Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. When the word got out that Jesus was not far from Jerusalem, a large crowd came up to see him. This is in uh, John, John chapter 12, if you want to look this up. A large crowd came out to see Jesus, and they also wanted to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. This prompted the chief priest to seal their plans to do away with both Jesus and Lazarus, for his miracle testimony was incontrovertible and was persuading many of the Jews living in Jerusalem to believe in Jesus. This is, this is so crazy. You, you have the so-called most righteous of the nation conspiring to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Do you think things like that go on today? Do you think people in authority conspire to gain authority, to maintain that authority? You see it all the time. I mean, you, you almost can't read the news anymore. I, I'm just sick of the news. Who's sick of the news? I'm sick of the news. People are evil. So are you. <laughs> Slick there, wasn't it? I have three rules for life. Would you like to hear them? You captive audience, you? Rule number one. You ready for this? People are crazy. Everybody got that? Listen, I'm helping you. I don't know if it... Rule number two. When in doubt, read rule number one again. And here's rule number three. I'm a people and I'm crazy too. Now, it's your expectation of people being normal that continually exasperates you. Have you, have you, has that registered with you yet? I'm the master of the obvious, maybe sometimes. Anyway, they didn't want to just kill Jesus. They wanted to kill Lazarus. Now, when I'm talking about the danger of popularity, I'm really not suggesting we don't aspire to be the best we can at whatever we can be. I'm simply saying this, though. You need to be equipped to go there. You really do. Because the thing I'm talking about is called living to man. Because if you live for men's approval, 
you're going to die from their disapproval. Somebody needs to probably write that down. Number one, let me talk about this. The triumphal entry sealed Jesus' fate. The Pharisees determined to get rid of both Jesus and Lazarus. Number two, if you have an overwhelming desire to gain popularity or keep it, it can easily become a temptation for you to become political. Now, what do I mean by political? I'm not talking Republican or Democrat. I mean it can tempt you to begin to determine who your friends are based on your own selfish ambition in life. And that's a terrible way to pick your friends. Somebody squeak out a little small amen. It can tempt you to alter your opinions to please or win people. It can cause you to compromise your convictions. You may even lie and falsely accuse other people for personal gain. Now, here's the, the crazy thing. I'm, I'm bringing all of these points out in the middle of what went on in not the secular part of Israel's life, but in the religious part. Now, Jesus said in John 44, of course you're unable to believe in me. For you live for the praises of others and not for the praise that comes from the only true God. Now, that's a very significant statement. Let me make that again. Jesus says there's a direct connection between whose approval you're after and how much faith you'll have. Is that registering? There's a direct relationship here between um, how much faith you'll have based on whose approval you're really after. John 5.44, of course you're unable to believe in me, for you live for the praises of others and not for the praise that comes from the only true God. Number four, another danger of desiring popularity is in how we handle people's attitudes toward us. If we live from their approval, we will suffer from their disapproval. Now, I realize I'm saying the same thing over and over, but this is so important. This is like a rule of life. Now, This is something I've learned over the years from personal experience. When we soar inwardly by imagining people saying good things about us, ultimately we become depressed when we imagine bad things they may be saying. How many of you are with me here? How many of you are listening to this? Now here's the problem. Once you begin down that pathway of imaginary imaginary approval from people, you can't turn that thing off until the rejection aspect of it plays itself out because that's not two things that go on. That is one thing. Who's listening? How many of you really understand what I'm saying about that imagination that goes on and you imagine people liking you or you imagine people? Listen, if you don't imagine people liking you, you won't imagine people not liking you. Can you hear that? Oh, man. Okay. All right. It reminds me of the line of a poem Rudyard Kipling wrote. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two impostors just the same... 
You will be a man. That's what Rudyard Kipling said. Those two imposters. People liking you or people not liking you, those are both imposters. But see, we go there because we don't know who we are. We go there because we don't know who we are. We go there because we don't know what God thinks about us. Those two imposters. I was talking with someone the other day, and they said, are you excited about your book? I have a book out. I'm an author. I have important people reading my book. Am I excited? Well, not really. I'm happy, but I'm not living there, ladies and gentlemen, because there are going to be people that read that book, and they might be (laughs) important too, and they are not going to like what I wrote in that book. So if I don't go up, I ain't coming back down. Practice what you preach. Do you understand what I'm saying? Am I excited? Well, yeah, I'm really excited. I'm really thankful. But I can't, I can't live in what T.D. Jakes thinks about me or what Bill Johnson thinks about me or what anybody thinks about me. That doesn't give me license to be an idiot, you know, or to misbehave or mistreat people. But you can't live there. You'll be up and down like a yo-yo. You will not be a stable individual. When I was a young Christian, one of the basic characteristics of my life would be instability. You have no idea how far I've come. (laughs) Some of you may still wonder, but uh, you really don't know. And it's because of some of these things the Lord has really shown me. Now, let's look at something else. 1151. Okay, we're in good shape. Everybody okay? Okay. One of the things I so appreciate about the triumphal entry in these portions of Scripture is it it reveals the nature of Jesus. And it really speaks to the humility of and the gentleness and the kindness of Jesus. If the Jesus you have met is not gentle and kind, you either don't know him well enough, or that wasn't the real Jesus. Are you with me? Jesus is gentle. Jesus is kind. Actually, Apostle Paul says one of the apostolic virtues is kindness. That's one of the ways you identify a true apostle. Not by the name on his business card. Not by how many books he wrote. Is he kind? Kindness, my goodness. What would happen if people in the world were kind? Wouldn't that be shocking? People would probably get saved to meet Jesus for real. The nature of Jesus is revealed here. Um, I read Matthew 21 5 already, which is Zechariah 9 9. Tell Diane's daughter, Look, your king arrives. Now, think about this. If, um, you know, when the president, I've watched this over the years, when the president of the United States, 
all the way back to like Reagan, Bush, Obama, uh, Trump, all of these different presidents, when they come to town, nobody has got to tell you that they're here. You can't get through traffic. All of the pomp and circumstance around it, the secret service around it, people don't really have to say, look, somebody important. And yet when the king of the ages was going to arrive in Jerusalem, the prophet had to tell people what to look for or you might miss him. Wow, think about meeting Jesus, having an opportunity, and missing it. See, that's the, that's, that's the thing that's so um, fearful about when Jesus actually comes to Jerusalem, he begins to weep. This conquering king comes with tears running down his face because he came to transform and ransom ancient Jerusalem to save them from an impending future and they did not recognize him. My goodness, it's a frightening thing for people to have an opportunity to meet Jesus, to give their life to Jesus, to be converted, to be baptized in water as a statement and proclamation of their faith and walk right by, not make that decision. I don't think we realize how how fearful that could actually be, that there could be implications, there could be complications based on your decision or the lack of your decision. And so the prophet says, here's what to look for in your king. He's coming to you full of gentleness, sitting on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Mentioned this earlier, but let me review it again. A donkey is smaller than a horse. A horse is smaller than a stallion. And a donkey's colt is smaller than a donkey. They average 36 inches. Jesus was sitting on a horse that high. And he was riding it downhill, a steep incline. Can you imagine how ridiculous that had to look? This is a king, yes, but it's a king of a different kind. It's a king representing a unique and special kingdom, unlike the kingdoms of this world whose rulers put you in subjugation, who subject you to all kind of disastrous consequences, who take away from you your children, who take away from you your resource, who tell you how to think, who tell you how to live. That is not the king of this kingdom. He is not like that at all. Jesus would much rather teach you how to think than tell you what to think. He would rather prove himself to you to be the kind of person he truly is than impose on you and make you somehow accept a religion that really does not represent him very well at all. Come on, Jesus. Woo! So, 
Unbelievable. Steep decline, large man, small animal, and he rode a horse, he rode a colt, rather, a donkey that had never been ridden before. How many of you ever broken a horse? Where are the roads? There's Coogan back there. How easy was that, Coogan? Was that fun? Was he happy to have you on his back? Not at all. But there was something about Jesus that could cause anyone, anything to change. Even a small, unbroken donkey would yield to the peace and the majesty and the gentleness and the kindness that was Christ Jesus. That's so wonderful, Lord. And then we see also, what was Jesus like? He was anointed with the oil of joy above his brethren. Jesus was the most um, joyful person who ever lived in the world. And yet when he came in Jerusalem, when he saw what happened to, to a nation God sent him to who rejected him, he could do very little at that point but weep. A couple other things about the fulfillment of prophecy. There at least 400 prophecies, appearances, or foreshadowings of Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled one of them in Zechariah 9.9. How many of you were here when Brian Simmons was here a couple months back? He's the, uh, raise your hands again. How many of you were not here? Let me see how many of you were not here. Okay, he's coming back maybe, but uh, he did the translation, the Passion Translation. And last week he, he's just finished Isaiah, so he sent me Isaiah. And um, so I was looking through Isaiah 53, and I read this verse 6. Like wayward sheep, we have all wandered astray. Each of us has turned from God's paths and chosen our own way. Even so, Yahweh laid the guilt of our every sin upon him. Let me read that again. Essence of the gospel. Jesus died in your place. Isaiah 53, 6. Like wayward sheep, we have all wandered away. Each of us has turned from God's path and chosen our own way. Even so, the Lord Yahweh laid the guilt of our every sin upon him. In the footnotes of that verse, Brian says this. He writes, This entire chapter provides such detail of the last hours of Jesus Christ that one would almost imagine Isaiah was standing at the foot of the cross writing this chapter. Isaiah's prophecy, written more than 700 years before the cross, is all stated in the past tense as though it had already happened. There's no other person in human history who could possibly fulfill all of Isaiah's prophecy. It is believed that Isaiah 53 is referred to 85 times in the New Testament. And then he lists a bunch of these different uh, references. So Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of, of being the Messiah. And we see that through the um, triumphal entry. And here's one other thing, one other point I wanted to make about 
what Jesus did. He had that word of knowledge. Do you remember that? If anyone stops you, stops you and asks, what are you doing? Just tell them this is needed for the Lord of all. Jesus basically told his disciples, you, you know, th- think about what it would have been like to be around Jesus. Jesus tells you to go somewhere to get somebody's horse, and he has not made arrangements. He hasn't made arrangements. This, this was not prearranged, ladies and gentlemen. This was a word of knowledge Jesus had. Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. And this was not the only time he did this to those guys. He said, go to this certain place. There you're going to see a donkey. Untie it, bring it to me. And if anybody says, what are you doing? Tell them the Lord of the universe needs it. That's really what the interpretation of that would tell them the Lord of the universe needs it. And he'll bring it back when he's through. And they go, oh, okay. It was like some Jedi mind trick. Are you Luke? I am not Luke. You are not Luke. (laughs) What are you doing with that donkey? We are taking the donkey. The Lord of the universe needs it. Have fun with the donkey. Ask him to return it, please. (laughs) But Jesus did this. The woman at the well, Jesus knew she'd had five husbands. First time he met her. Peter comes to Jesus one time and he says, Jesus, they say we need to pay the temple. I was going to say the pimple tax. That wouldn't work. This is a little teenage thing there maybe. but Pay the temple tax. And so Jesus says, okay, Peter, go fishing. Cast a hook. The first uh, fish that you pull out, reach into his mouth, pull out a coin, and go pay the temple tax for the two of us. You you know what I love about the New Testament? If you really believe it's the Bible, you throw yourself into a very exclusive group of people. I believe that really happened. I don't believe that's a legend. I believe that happened. I believe that happened. I'm one of those guys. You you cannot simply say that the New Testament is unique. Do you remember the portion in Matthew when Jesus rose from the dead? The Gospel of Matthew says... Saints of old came out of their tombs and appeared unto many. I believe that happened. I I love the Bible. I love that. I'm hungry for supernatural. Who in here is hungry for supernatural? Yeah, I'm tired of like God on the half shell. You know, I want full, full. I say I do. It'd probably scare me half to death. But I want more. Who wants more of God? The supernatural God. The God that does stuff and you go, I don't understand. You will later. Another time, Jesus says about the Passover. He says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Go to a certain place and you're going to see a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And when he gets to a certain place, ask him, where is the upper room that's prepared for the master for the feast? And he will show it. And that's where we're going to have Passover. What? Anyway, words of knowledge. Now, why would I go into that? How many of you pray the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven. What's the next verse? Hallowed be your name. Next verse. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth 
as it is in heaven. Okay, what we're praying there, and this was the authorized prayer. You may not understand this, but that's the Melchizedek prayer proclamation. I can't get into that, but it's a wonderful idea. The Lord's Prayer was the only prayer, not that Jesus prayed, but that he taught us to pray. So what are we saying? We're saying, Lord, whatever you do in heaven, do that here. Do you understand that's what that means? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's the next phrase? Give us this day our daily bread. And then where we go? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation to deliver us from evil. Here's what I don't personally believe, and this could rattle your thinking a little bit, but I, I have something to back it up. I do not believe in the midst of the Lord's Prayer we're asking for bread. Give me a sandwich. Father, who art in heaven, how be your name? Kingdom come, you will be done, earth is in heaven. Give me a sandwich. <laughs> Forgiveness, you know. Now you may go, well, that's, but listen, let me, when you read that, give us this, say, day, give us this day, our day and daily are two completely different words. And commentators argue over what daily actually means. Give us this day our daily bread. Why didn't you just say, give us bread today? Simple enough. Many commentators believe that the word daily means tomorrow. Let's say it that way. Give us this day tomorrow's bread. But what was Jesus really teaching us to pray? He was teaching us to pray, Lord, you know what's coming tomorrow. Give us today whatever we need for whatever we're facing or going to face. For man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that continually proceeds out of the mouth of God. Here's what I believe Jesus was, was really saying. He was saying, you need to ask God this. Lord, you know what's coming. Speak to me. Give me my daily bread. Give me what I need to know for tomorrow. Tell me how to pay my temple tax. Tell me how to get to an upper room, a place you prepared that I have no natural way of knowing. That entire Lord's Prayer, that entire Melchizedek Prayer Proclamation is not even a prayer of request. It's a proclamation. Give us this day. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. What we're doing is we are agreeing with what heaven wants to see happen in our realm. And that's exactly what Jesus did with those words of knowledge. He was always prepared for what was coming. We should be too. And that's the triumphal entry. Amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. 
For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.